When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. <laughs> Were you sure? <laughs> pretty sure. Do I sound sure unsure? This is Danielle Town. Do I, I think sound? I think it's Danielle Town. Do I sound a little so we're unclear? Here on the <laughs> we're on the Invested Podcast. In case you weren't aware of that, everybody, I don't know how you would be here without being aware of that. Not only that, but unless you just dropped out of the, you know, out of the sky into this podcast on this particular podcast, you already know what this is all about. Some people drop out of the sky onto this particular episode. Of course, we have so many okay. new people listening all the time. That is true. So let's just tell you everybody really quick that this is a podcast where I used to be teaching my daughter how to invest. You're still then teaching your daughter how to invest. It. I okay, appreciate a that. Bit. <laughs> but honestly, investing is, and, and by the way, when I say invest, we mean something very specific. We mean investing is when you buy something for less than it's worth and you have very little, if any risk at all, <clears throat> that we would almost call it like getting a free lottery ticket or purchasing things with a huge margin of safety. In other words, this is Warren Buffett basic strategy, which totally. is how yeah. Now, one of the things that's kind of fun that I thought I'd chat with you about today is that Warren Buffett's basic strategy has changed a bit over the last 60 years. Oh, so mm. we uh, can talk about that because that is, Phil, that's a meaty topic. <laughs> well, the meatiest <laughs> part of it is that for the last 50 of those 60 years, Warren has been doing exactly what we've been teaching on this podcast, which is trying to buy wonderful businesses at a really, really cheap price. And to do so requires understanding the business, obviously, or you don't know what it's going to be worth. And then making sure that the business has dur durable <clears throat> qualities to it that allow you to look into the future safely. And very much like buying, a, let's say, a house next door in a really good neighborhood that's improving over time, got good schools, all that stuff. You wouldn't worry too much that 20 years from now it's going to be worth less. You you know it's going to be worth more. You just don't know how much more. might be worth a lot more. Just due to the passage of time and <clears throat> having right. chosen a place that has underlying defensible qualities. Yep. And we call those qualities a moat. In real estate, it's location, but in other businesses, there's various kinds of boats. And then, of course, you, you want to be sure that management isn't going to screw you up. So you'd like to have management that has integrity and talent. And then, you know, you want to buy it with a, with a great price. So those are the elements of great investing that Buffett's been using for 50 years that we've been talking about here for four or five years. But there was a first 10 years of his, of his investing life, he did it a little differently. Um, his teacher was Ben Graham, and Ben um, developed his investing strategies during the Depression and was able to make what would be the equivalent of billions of dollars today 
during the depression in World War II, um, without speculating, uh, you know, without just taking big risks and hoping you, you, you bet on the right side, you know, the way essentially people are today speculating on various things like maybe Bitcoin or gold or something like that. You have no idea what the thing is worth. You just hope it's going to go up. So Graham didn't do that. Graham formed the idea that <clears throat> the market is an opportunity for you to use the market as a tool um, and the market will price things very cheaply. And then, of course, he came up with the idea of how you would figure out what the value would be, right? Yeah. Of a thing. Yeah. So what Buffett did, now this is what's really fun, is that today Warren Buffett buys things and would like prefer to never sell them at all, ever. Because it's really hard to buy things super cheap. So if you can get something that's a great business and it'll compound your money with a high return on invested capital for a long time, then you, you, you sort of hang on to that. That's the idea. Absolutely. That's the easiest, lowest the easiest. effort. <laughs> Our favorite. Of dollars. <laughs> just, just sit there and do sit nothing. Sit on the couch and do nothing. Exactly. And so that's not early Buffett. This is what's so cool is that early Buffett, Warren from 1955 to about 1962 or so, 63, was buying companies so cheaply. Now, remember, this is only a decade after the end of World War II. Mm. When he really started going, and mm. so, and also oh, remember that a the stock more than market. A decade. Well, when he started, it was nineteen fifteen years. Okay, all right. So, the, and you have to remember the context here is that the market dropped in nineteen twenty nine to nineteen thirty two. It went from four hundred down to eighty. Okay? okay, so that's a huge, shocking drop. And then by nineteen fifty five, it had gotten back to four hundred. So we're talking about 26 years here, where after a while, people understood you can't make money in the stock market. That was that was just the understanding, you know. And so by 1955, i.e., meaning it just sort of goes up and then it comes back down to where it was, yeah. and then it sort of goes up, you, and then it you comes can't back. trust it. It's going to go back to 80. Got it. Is yeah. The feeling, okay. right? Yeah. People, people. I mean, frankly, not an unreasonable conclusion. Not, not at all. You just had a world war. Then you got Korea, right? I mean, yeah. and then you got Vietnam starting to brew. It's just like the world. And you got the Russians and the Americans with or the Soviet Union and the Americans are at a standoff with nuclear weapons. You got Cuba coming up. All that stuff is going on. It's dangerous. The world at that point in time is a dangerous place. You don't, you don't put your money into stuff. And by the way, at the same, by the same token, as far as anybody in the world knew, the dollar was as good as gold at that point. And you didn't realize that it had been started to be devalued until maybe 1970 or so. There was also a lot less, I don't know if this is quite the right thing to say, but roughly, there was a lot less speculation at that time. Now, I'm not going to say that there was there was no, spe like there was definitely speculation in the stock market, absolutely. And we've seen boom and bust over and over in every market ever all the way back to, uh, you know, the tulip market. But, sure. um, but at the time, I think that like looking at it from the lens of somebody who now like has come to investing at a time of never having not had the internet, it's hard to imagine what it was like then. And what it was like is you had to know somebody who was a stockbroker in order to buy anything. And you right. had to be able to get information about stocks and companies, which was expensive to do, took time, took effort, or you had to know somebody who you trusted enough to do that stuff for you. And just um, 
I don't think, I mean, I actually don't know the stats and I'm sure that they're somewhere that some financial professor has. Um, I don't think a large percentage of the population was investing in stocks or speculating in stocks. And I, so I it's think just this fewer people, few, less money, you know? I, I don't have this number for sure, but if I had to guess, I would say about 8%. Yeah. Okay. I, I have no quibbles had, with that total guess. And today yeah. it's of course it's almost everybody because you got a 401k plan. Totally. Totally. Whatever. Totally. So yeah. So here here is Buffett in 1955 with a stock market that is undervalued still in 1955. Remember, it's at 400 on the Dow and has been improving. Like the the United States was booming by 1955, right? And so, um, but at that time, you could still find companies at super low prices. What what uh, a price that Ben Graham called net net, which meant basically you take the assets of the company and you subtract out all the liabilities, and then your your net cash, what you have left, net cash, is more than you're paying for the company. Hmm. <laughs> Think about that. Yeah. Right. So you you are in a position where if if the company liquidated tomorrow, you'd make a profit. Yeah, it's Just kind of an alternate methodology to get at book value. It's not even book value. It's cheaper than book value. It's like. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like it's not yeah. the same calculation, but it's right, the right, same right. thought process. Right, exactly. It's basically not trusting even the accountants to tell you what things are worth. <laughs> well, that seems pretty reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> and so what Buffett started doing, and this is the part that's just amazing. when What we've taught you guys is that you want to find out the value of the business. There are several ways we've talked about doing that, the 10 cap way and payback time way and, and doing a discounted You know what we should do, Dad? Because remember when we talked about all of that stuff? This was years ago that we talked about all that stuff what on this podcast. Yeah. And then we, we wrote it all up something. in the book. Maybe we should talk about that. Not not today. But maybe not we not should today. talk about, we should do another series that's a little bit more like uh, I think organized. Right. Especially because, if I get done telling you what Buffett did. You're going to really want to go do that. Oh, are you saying I'm interrupting you a little uh, too Just many times? I, Okay, well, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, my, <laughs> my point get, was made. I want to get this out the door here before we spin <laughs> off. Fine. Because here's what he did. He bought stuff at a price, okay? Let's just say a price. I don't know. It's a good price. A very, very, very good price. Great. And here's what is shocking is that he sold it when it got up to our margin of safety price. Oh, that's not what I expected you to say. Yeah. I thought I know. you'd say intrinsic value. No. He sold it at the value of the business as a private company, which is hmm. our. Hmm. And so we can recap all of that later. But let me just say Buffett would be selling it to me in that in this scenario. And then he would take the money and go find another one that was super cheap. And then he would sell it at the private at at what he would consider the private market price or what he would he and Charlie called a fair price. So he didn't sit in these things hoping it would go up to some imaginary public stock value. 
They were so shell-shocked from the depression in World War II, even by the middle 1950s up to the middle 1960s, that nobody trusted that higher price. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Now today we, we- You take your money and you run. Yeah. And to put this in perspective, um, what Buffett would consider and what I would consider, and hopefully you guys would consider a fair market price- would be something with a PE of around, you know, an S&P 500 or Dow company, big company with a PE ratio of around 15 or 16 mm -hmm. would be historically the correct public price and the correct private price. We know from lots and lots of experience with private companies and venture capital and all that for all, you know, what's been going on in the United States for years is about seven and a half times the earnings of a company. So about half of the public price would be the private price. Mm -hmm. And Buffett was selling at that price, that half of the public price. So he was buying at probably a quarter of the public price. Wow. It just really today, makes a huge comment on what that market was like compared to today's. Oh, yeah, it does. Because that doesn't even market, exist now. doesn't exist. Not possible. doesn't exist. And today's price, I mean, you guys, it's like so high. It's like we're at a... We're at a yield of two or three percent. I mean, we're there's usually this big gap, as we've talked about, between you know the yield of a ten-year T-bill and what you get out of the market, because there has to be, right? I mean, the stock market's producing like let's say a nine percent return, including dividends, over a long period of time, and and that relationship to the stock market return of nine percent to the bond return of maybe four percent over that same period of time, you can see there's a spread of about five or six percentage points in there. And today their spread is almost zero. Hmm. So the market has been now priced at as if it's a bond from the US government. Like it's that level of certainty, which is insane. It makes no sense whatsoever. So Buffett's sitting on 140, 150 billion because he can't make any sense out of this at all. Um, Peter Schiff who's a, a kind of a gold bug and but a but a decent investor. Is just wrote that it's just an insane priced market. You can't you can't justify this on any historical method whatsoever. And so here you've got Buffett back when he was really being careful and making sure he had plenty of margin of safety, selling at what we think is a margin of safety. And we're trying to buy stuff at a margin of safety price. And things are priced four times higher than that now. Yeah. yeah. Not double, but double the double. Yeah. It, it's just like a breathtaking. And here's what I wanted to say is that I've been going through every, you know, periodically I'll go through as many of the small cap and mid cap stocks as I can. So these are companies that are, have some degree of liquidity. There may be, you know, $200 million in market cap or 300 million and up to maybe two or three, 4 billion, 5 billion in that range someplace where, you know, the big guys like Buffett could never play, right? They, they're not going to go there mm -hmm. because buying, you know, under 5% of a company like that is a rounding error if it doubles. It makes no difference to your portfolio. Yeah, and then buying so much of it would cause the price to shoot up pretty quickly. Cause the price to rocket. So they just don't usually have that much, much volume in those companies. It, it, precisely. They might be trading 100,000 shares in a day or mm -hmm. 50,000 shares in a week or some crazy number. But here's what I wanted to tell you is that looking at these companies- What do you want to tell me, dad? Is, is that first off, 
these companies are so insanely priced now. I, I mean, we just said that on a good company, what we're seeing is the prices are four times higher than what we want to pay. So for example, if the real value I think is a hundred, it's selling today for 200 and I want to buy it for 50. Okay. That's, that's our standard view of things right now. I'm looking through these small caps and it's like the majority of them aren't making any money at all. They're, you mean the company no is earnings. the company does not have earnings or profit. The company okay. does not have earnings. I mean, I can go through one after the other, and my God, I mean, even the good ones, the return on invested capital is like three percent. Oh. You know? We wouldn't buy anything that's not double digits. You know? When it's you like, said you that know, the price of the stock is insane, did you mean that it was way overpriced or way underpriced? Way, way, way overpriced, way overpriced. overpriced. Okay. I mean, it's just like, I, you, I can't even believe it. it I can go through, <laughs> I can go through 150 companies looking, you know, and, and let's say maybe, you know, over an hour or so looking a little bit carefully at each one, just to get an idea of what does each one do and, and you know, what, and I'm looking at this wave of companies that are selling for a hundred dollars a share and have no earnings at all. Hmm. They have no prospect of future earnings. They, they've hmm. been taken public and they've shot up based on some hyped up story. Yeah. Which is the prospect of future earnings. The right prospect there. of future earnings, which have now Years, you know, several years later have proven to be not true, not going to happen. Ah, well, that's not good. And the price got up to 100 and now it's drifting down and now it's at 30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the earnings are negative. Yeah. And whatever yeah. they've done. And then they, you read some BS that the that the management put together about how their future still looks bright, right? And you're supposed to pay for this when it has no cash flow no earnings. It's losing money year after year. You know that management isn't going to just go, oh, let's just liquidate. No, they've got money sitting in the bank. They've got 50 million because they took the company public and they still got 50 million left. They're going to spend it all. And who are they going to spend it on? Themselves, their, their own salaries. They're keeping people employed. They're justifying this nonsense. And so what I'm thinking is that we may be headed back to a Buffett era. We may be because this, look at if a thing can't go on forever, it won't. Well, That's I think there's a big difference a between saying that the market could correct and we're going to go back to a Buffett era of 1955. So I let's, mean, let's think about I think what, that there's a lot of reasons the market is very different now than it was in 1955. And the overall worldwide economic situation is incredibly different than it was in 1955. Okay, so well, I'm it certainly not saying this is going to happen tomorrow. All right. It doesn't I'm, surprise me that the market is dramatic, that the, the ratios of the market are dramatically different than they were then. Okay, uh, well, let's start with this. Warren Buffett has $150 billion in cash. All right, and that says a lot of things. And one of the things it says is that this market is going to correct. And he's going to have cash there when it does. Now, what does that mean? Well, something comes along where all these companies, which make no money and are, st are still alive, and they're alive because, in effect, the government is supporting them to keep them alive. So they're keeping, they're keeping zombie you're talking companies to, you're alive. You're talking about interest rates. Let's just be clear. Interest rates are, yeah. 
interest rates of corporation are so stupidly low and people are desperate to go out there and lend money uh, because the government will buy those corporate mortgage, effectively a corporate mortgage, right? The corporation goes out and gets a loan. And now the Federal Reserve is buying the ETFs that are based on those loans to support those loans. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay. Yep. So, so yep. now you've got, now it's not just buying crappy real estate loans. Now it's buying crappy corporate loans. And what this does is it keeps things alive mm-hmm. that should have died normal deaths and not upset the entire world economic system. Yeah. But the longer, Agreed. as we saw in 2007, the longer government intervention in the form of low interest rates supports zombie real estate, zombie companies of any sort then the worse the crash happens because people start to speculate on mm-hmm. the bonds. Mm-hmm. All right. That's yeah. what's happening now. Yeah. They're speculating on corporate bonds and but the government think- is now in there supporting that. And when that goes down finally, then yeah, I think you do have a good shot at seeing 40 or 50% of the S and P 500 go bankrupt and go bankrupt quickly. It's like, it's like there's an old joke that, that somebody says, so how, you know, to a rich guy, how did you go bankrupt? And the answer was slowly at first and then all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's potentially what we'll see here is that we'll see slow, like right now, it's slowly, they're slowly going bankrupt, right? Being supported by ridiculous loans that keep these guys in money so they can continue to pay themselves and keep people employed in zombie companies. These are the living dead and they are going to go slowly. And then all of a sudden there won't be any loans. All of a sudden the banks will go, no. Yeah. And they will all of a sudden have 40 or 50% of them go down. And when that happens, the whole market disappears. I think. We have that. I don't know. I don't know. That's a strong doomsday scenario. Okay. I can add to it. You want to hear some more? Oh my gosh. I've been listening to the doomsday scenario for five years. Oh yeah. All right. Listen to this one. It just keeps on getting worse in your head, doesn't it? Well, yeah. Just because I, I, I just don't think you can continue to prop up stuff with fake money. I, I think at some point you can't use fake money anymore. It's like going... Having seashells instead of dollars, all right, and but I mean but that is happening. Running down to the to the beach and just grabbing as many seashells as they can pick up. It is happening. That's what the Federal Reserve is doing. That now. that the government is purchasing ETFs, and I think it's deplorable and, and should not be happening, and is going to be one of those things that we look back on, like the uh, subprime mortgages, and just go like, how did how did anybody let that happen? There yep. were reasons at the time, and that's how anybody lets it happen. But I'm not sure that it's on, and I, I actually be interesting to find out, I'm not sure it's on such a level, such a scale, that it would cause some sort of massive decline in overall corporate value. Okay, I think well. interest rates are going to stay low for a while. And so does everybody else who's buying all of these 
companies that are getting the cheap loans. Well, so, so do you, you do know that the interest rates just went up 300% in a year. Okay. They're still low. Yeah. But the Federal Reserve didn't want them to go up 300%. In other words, last year, they lost control of interest rates in a big way. Big way. That was not the Federal Reserve raising the, the base prime rate. That was just the yeah, market. It was just the saying, market. Screw you. I'm not taking 0.6% for a 10-year loan. I yeah, so maybe, that, maybe that's how this will go. Maybe the market, the banks, will... Uh, just keep on creeping that interest rate up because they don't want to take the risk and maybe it'll happen gradually. I don't right. know. And that could be, that could actually be super interesting. It's like gradually and then suddenly, right? So Japan went through this and we seem to be following them along pretty good and their stock market collapsed. Yeah. Absolutely collapsed and would have collapsed all the way down to depression levels, except for one thing. And that is that their central bank stopped fooling around and just started buying the entire market. And I, I don't know if this is right. You can check this. But I think right now that Japan's central bank owns about 90% of the stock market. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, that's that interesting. For, about that for a little. I don't even know if that's true. I don't know if that's I, true. You I, just I say things. If that's true. I just Nobody listened to him. <laughs> I, wouldn't it be ridiculous? Oh, wouldn't that, it be amazing if what I just stated as a fact actually was a fact? That yeah, that be, would be actually extremely amazing. How much? Well, of this the... has been a great talk. I'm really glad that we recorded it and put it out for everybody. Um, what can I think of that might be more helpful? Okay, well, I'll tell you. As soon as my dad, in a private way, starts telling me all of this stuff. I immediately turn to my own investing practice every time because I don't really, I mean, yes, I care about sort of the overall macroeconomic situation because I, I think it is important to be following what's happening and having some sense of what's going on. But if there are no companies to own at a good price, then we're not in the market because we didn't buy companies at an overpriced level. So I don't feel that exposed to all this stuff. And the companies I own, I feel really, really comfortable with the price that I bought them at. I could be wrong. Totally possible. Totally could have paid way too much. And, you know, I'm going to be holding them for the next 30 years, ruining the day that I purchased them. But I don't think so. So... I feel really comfortable and I sleep really well, at least in that regard, <laughs> at night. <laughs> the rest that's of that's good, and that's right. that the rest of good. my problems are separate. I taught you well. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I feel like we get into these discussions of like, "Well, oh, the sky is gonna fall, but it hasn't fallen yet, but it's gonna fall," and it just sort of doesn't affect me that much. But I can see that it affects you a lot. Do you feel like that's an important part of your investing practice to yeah, follow the overall macro market? I think it's important for me to understand why I can't find good companies at good prices. I, so I it's a, born of frustration. It's born of curiosity. <laughs> um, by the way, before I, I go on, Bank of Japan does not own 90% of the Japanese stock market. Yeah, I didn't right? think so. It didn't even come close. Um, what it owns is 
um, a staggering amount of each company of the top companies that are in the market. And ballpark, it looks like the Bank of Japan owns about 10% of the entire stock market, which is just crazy. What's your source on that? Hmm? What's your source on that? Uh, that would be Reuters. That would be okay. Bank of Japan. That's P Online. That's Nikkei, Asia Nikkei. That is the Wall Street Journal. Good enough for me. So <clears throat> it is among the 10 largest shareholders of 96% of the listed companies. Now, here's what it, here's the 90%. I know I saw this number someplace. Bank of Japan owns 90% of all the ETFs. Hmm. Try that one on for size. So <clears throat> in the United States, the ETFs own right now about 40% of the stock market. So ETFs some, are a problem, aren't they? They sound yeah. so good. And I think they're going to be a problem. They're going to be a problem. Yeah. If we did what Bank of Japan has done, which it sounds like we're we will we're on that track. Um, our central bank will own ninety percent of forty percent. That's thirty six percent of the market. I, you, that's conceivable to me. I yeah, yeah, I can I can get I can believe that. Okay, yeah. so and then thirty six percent of the market isn't going to sell, so that'll stabilize the market. I can totally see them doing this. Totally yeah. see them doing this. Me too. To support the market, which again is just printing money. Can you imagine they just print enough money to buy 36% of a $30 trillion market? That's $10 trillion. So this is not outside the range of possibility here. We just did it. We just did $6 trillion. Why not another $10 trillion to support these stocks? I mean, I'm starting to think the doomsday isn't so doomy. Doomy isn't dumb. It is definitely out there that these guys are on track to do this. And you know there's no political party that wants to be there when when it collapses. They're going to do everything they can to prevent a collapse. And the doomsday machine that is in, in, uh, in operation right now <clears throat> has moved the 10-year T-bill from 0.6% or to 1.6% in a matter of a year, a 300% increase. And that machine will continue to operate as they continue to print money. So if they print another 10 trillion, that machine will go into full gear and bring interest rates up, up, up. And when it brings interest rates, I, I don't know, I pick a number, 5% on the 10-year T-bill, 7% on the 10-year T-bill, in the range of what it could do, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden the entire tax base of the United States goes to pay interest rates on the, on the U.S. debt. There is no money for the operations mm. of the entire military, federal government, all the welfare system, there's no money. So you have to print that too. So there you go. I mean, there's the doomsday machine. It's you just possible. paint yourself into a corner. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. So what should Great. you do? What should you do? I am going to do what I've been doing. What are you going to do? I am going to um, keep doing what I've been doing. <laughs> which I'm really excited about. <laughs> we'll talk more about Do you see about what I mean? Do. Like, I just see no Let's point in these conversations. <clears throat> All right. We're going to have a conversation next time. Not about, about this, I hope. No, about what to do when this, in, in case this is going to happen. What to do. I mean, we've literally been talking about that over and over and over and over. And it's always the same conclusion. I know. Keep, Keep doing, doing what, what we've been doing. <laughs> So I'm, I'm putting a stop to it. I'm over it. 
One more time. <laughs> just one more time. I know everybody's sitting out there right now going, okay, now what, what should we do? And I promise you, I'm not going to come back and just say, do what you've been doing. You literally just said that. Well, I'm going to change my mind. Oh, great. Okay. I'm not going to change my mind. I'm going to add to it. I'm yeah. Gonna, I'm going to elaborate. Heard that Listen. before. All right. Okay. That's enough. That's <laughs> enough for today. <laughs> Time to go play. See Thanks, you guys. Everybody. Have fun now. Try to put the doomsday out of your mind. Please do. Well, wow. No, please do. I, I love doing Pay attention. Yeah, pay attention. Yes. All right. See you okay. guys. Bye. Bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And I'm really important. It's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.